I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat me a lot of peaches I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches I'm moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches Peaches come from a can, they were put there by a man In a factory downtown if I Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are talking to Chris Ballou. Chris was the frontman for, who else? The Presidents of the United States of America. As I think most people remember, they burst onto the scene in the mid-90s. Their self-titled album sold a few million copies. It racked up a bunch of hits like Lump and Kitty and of course this song right here, Peaches. And they were sort of bewildering. They rocked, but it was also sort of a novelty. And they were funny, but they were really good musicians. So what's really going on here? It was fun, but it was a little weird, too. Out of step. Anyway, they rushed out a follow-up album, part two, and it flopped, unfortunately. And that was pretty much all she wrote for the presidents. They continued to put out some albums sporadically, but it wasn't their primary focus anymore after that. In fact, Chris, he's now a very successful musician for children. He records and performs under the name Casper Baby Pants. And what you find in this conversation that I admired so much is that you realize this is more than just a job. This is a calling to him. He is so passionate about what he is doing now and so happy doing it and feels such a calling that he's helping kids, that he's doing something that matters. It's really, really beautiful, actually. We talk about all of this. There is some anti-Trump conversation in here. I hope you guys are okay with that. It's natural considering the name of their band is often associated with sometimes good presidents, sometimes not so good. And uh, so we get into that. We get into, you know, how he makes a living, what's the status with the rest of the guys, all those things. Chris is such a nice man. I hope you enjoy this. He called me from his home in the Seattle area. Peaches for me. Millions of peaches. Peaches for free. I got to ask you, Chris, something that I've always wanted to know for 25 years now. And I got to know, is Peaches about something really deep? Is it like some, you know, sexual innuendo, some kinky thing that I'm not aware of? Or is it literally about Peaches? After years of, uh, you know, writing songs and going through what the presidents were all about and then finding Casper Baby Pants, I've kind of figured out that the chemistry that made the presidents work was the friction between innocence and innuendo. So like, yes, it was both. It was both actual peaches. I mean, it's a true story. I really did hold peaches in my hand uh -huh. and poke my finger deep down inside and make a little room for an ant to hide. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> but it was also uh, that uh, experience with me squashing the peaches in my hands was while I waited for a girl to arrive home so I could tell her I was super into her. Uh -huh. uh, and she never arrived. So the the smashing of the peaches got mixed up with the sexual frustration. So uh, it's all in there. I, I wondered. I've, I've been curious for years. And I wondered if maybe, and I thought, you know, I'm not very smart, Chris. And I thought maybe the world knows this and I don't. And I've never figured it out. Maybe right. peaches is kind of like the Rolling Stones' Brown Sugar. Maybe you're singing about black girls or something like that. or I don't know, but I've just always wondered, you know, what's really going on here? Because it could go either way. That's really weird because I was just listening to Brown Sugar two hours ago in the car as I drove home. <laughs> I'm glad that that's where I went with that then. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you guys, that stock and trade, you guys kind of stock and trade of that sort of juvenilia, if you want to say, or whatever, that that innocence mixed with... Uh, sarcasm or whatever. I mean, where did you guys find the balls to unleash songs like Peaches or Lump on the world? I mean, where did that come <laughs> from? Were you were you aspiring to be more of a punky they might be giants? Is this where does this where did this where does this kind of balls come from? <laughs> well, it really comes from just 
wanting to make ourselves laugh. Yeah. It's kind of like how, what I'm not comparing us to the Beatles, but it's what how the Beatles used to answer that question, which is we're just having a laugh, uh-huh. you know? <laughs> and uh, everybody's everybody thought there was some big plan behind it, but really they're just doing what made them laugh and uh-huh. made them uh, excited and all that. And so really it, all those songs were written without uh, any thought of a major label deal or being on MTV or anything. They were all written to make ourselves laugh and to make the – you know, however many people showed up on a Tuesday night uh, at a club in Seattle to see us, make them laugh. And that's all we, you know, I learned a long time ago that success is in, is immediately attainable if you reduce the circumference of your sphere of influence to include you, your friends, and the people that are standing in front of you at any given show. Uh, and using that as a sort of uh, base of operations uh, we were able to expand, I think, to everybody because we were just taking care of ourselves and our people. So yeah, it really just came from it came from uh, making ourselves uh, crack up. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. I wonder when you look back now, is it the, do you feel like the success that the presidents had was properly rated? Was it a shock like we shouldn't have gotten as far as we did, or do you think? We could have done so much better and we got screwed. You know what I mean? Because it could be your guys' niche is so it's uh, there's not a lot of people playing in that space. And I wonder if at the end of the day, you're like, no, we were we had more to give and we didn't get the chance. Or if it's like, no, we we were lucky to have been as successful as we were do it playing the funny songs that cracked us up. We made out OK. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, the answer is all of the above. Really? Uh, yep. All of the above. Uh, I definitely felt a sensation when we got signed that this was a big joke, a mistake, and that any minute I'd get a tap on the shoulder from the maitre d' telling me I'm improperly dressed for the party and I need to leave. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to break up the band immediately, all of, you know, just like the Sex Pistols and just like freeze ourselves in perfection. But then looking back, you know, the awareness I have now of the chemistry that made those songs work and sort of, uh, you know, this perspective I have now, which I didn't have then, it would have been really great to have some sort of producer, some sort of extra person enter the scene that we trusted, who could have shepherded us from our first record to our second record by telling us, here's what you're good at, Mm -hmm. Uh, here's your palette, you know, um, don't make your second record right away. Take a break. Go back. Live your life. Have your barbecues. Play for your friends. Yeah. Think about it. Um, we, so we made some mistakes that that as far as like trying to make our second record too fast. And mm-hmm. um, so I look back and I think, oh, you know, if we neg- if we'd engine if we'd negotiated that pathway a little better, we could have kept going for sure. Mm-hmm. But then again, I definitely felt like it was a flash in the pan, Sex Pistols type thing. And we were so unlike anything else. We had our, it was we were almost our own niche. Yeah. And uh, for that reason, we don't get on any sort of like best of the '90s, you know, lists or anything. We are um, kind of awesomely absent from '90s wrap ups and all that kind of noise. Um, and I like that because I feel like we just belong to the people who care. Really? Yeah. I like that we're untethered. Yeah. From time and space in a historical way like the hist when history is written we're not really written into it <sighs> even though we were you know uh-huh. sold five records and we were you know on mtv sandwiched in between janet jackson and and <laughs> destiny's child right <laughs> uh, but i kind of like the blissfully irrelevant territory we've landed on i, I like it so how you know i, I could I could think it should have gone a different way or we could have negotiated it better. But in the end, uh, the universe is unfolding as it should. (laughs) That's very wise. Um, What didn't get uh, put on display, I guess, on that second album that the proper producer would have opened up or unleashed on the world? Because my understanding... Answer that one too, because that one first, because I have a lot of questions about the timing of all this. I don't understand why somebody needs to put, why a band that's hot needs to hurry and put out a new album when they have a perfectly good one that they could just keep releasing singles from for another year or so. 
Yeah, that was a good question that I asked people at Columbia. <laughs> and, you know, the atmosphere at Columbia at that time and probably most major labels throughout time is one of abject fear. Mm-hmm. The Everybody who you work with is afraid of losing their job and wants to shine brightly and will pull and pick at a band and push them directions that are not good for the band, but they think are good for their bottom line and a way to keep their job. Mm-hmm. So we were, we definitely fell victim to that. We you know we were sent to Germany five times in 1996 when we should have been touring the U.S. more and like yeah. you said, like milking that record more, enjoying more singles off it. And, uh, and then we got kind of caught up in their whole like you know you got to strike while the iron's hot thing. Our manager Stacy, to her infinite credit, told us to stop and take a break, and we didn't listen, and we just went ahead and did it. I guess that second record, the the joke we in the band always say about that second record is it's a really good EP mm. that's uh, trying to be a record. Now that said, I listened to it not too long ago and I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's us tr- uh, losing the charm of our the dinky sound. Like yeah. sonically, that first record is very like it sounds like rubber bands and you know weird little drums. A little blue dune bugger in my hand. Okay, I got a rubber band motor humming on the beach, ready for fun. I quit spinning that web and come out and play in the sun. Eight thimble size cylinders to be as smooth as you please. Spider's badass fat old abdomen stuck in the bucket seat. Little dune bugger in the sand. Little blue dune bugger in my hand. We got into a big studio for the second record and it just started to sound like a regular a regular band, you know, mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though the songs are weird and quirky and interesting, the presentation became homogenized. And I think if we had the right producer, if we'd gone back and worked with Conrad, who we worked on the first record with, we probably would have been fine because he was a really good producer and he really helped us a lot. But we had this, you know, yeah. we, we were just following the rock and roll success brochure. <laughs> Work your entire life to have a great debut record and, uh, well, appearing to be an overnight sensation. Then yeah. tour your asses off, uh, make you know mistakes, go into the wrong territories, and then uh, hurry up and make your second record and do it fast while you're tired and have it be mediocre. You know, we were just ticking off all the boxes. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of true. Um, so, I, is the second album then? I mean, Mach Five comes out and it's. It gets some play. It's not quite to Lump or Peach's stature, but it's announcing that there's another album out there. There's more to come from this band. Is the second album one of those situations, though, where you... Uh, is it just the, the total cliche that everyone has, where it's like, I didn't have enough material left over, so uh, I, I was kind of uninspired. We had to rush this thing out. Or did you feel good about the, the material, but maybe the producer or the timing or whatever? I felt good about... You know, 75% of the material. Okay. few of the songs were not my favorite or were sort of leftovers from the first record that got left off for a good reason, but we were, you know, mm-hmm. hurrying. I really, really love a lot of the songs. I love Volcano. Under the island, middle of a mountain, there is a big bad woman system. The wind speakers, woofers and tweeters, amplifiers, melted wires, the bodies exploded, chorus corroded, underground the Puget Sound, causing a shifting and a drifting, big black boombox stuck in the hot rods, it's in there flowing, it's in there growing, you don't believe me. I think the video for Mach 5 is our best video yeah. by far. I, I just totally dig the energy of that video. And Conrad, our producer of our first record, is actually in that video. Really? He's the, he's the karaoke singer at the beginning. 
we wanted him to be involved in some way, so we put him in a video. <laughs> but why does that happen? I mean, you just got done. We just talked about this. I mean, we should have kept releasing singles. Is it that somebody's job was on the line? I mean, did someone come to you, Chris, and have a conversation about, now here's the deal. We really need you to go back into the studio and here's why. Or were you just sort of following orders? I'm still confused by this. Yeah, there was messaging from the label like it's time to capitalize and keep going and and uh, don't slack, don't uh, you know you may you know they didn't care about us as people at all. They just cared about making money. We were, as I understand it and was told and remember it, is that we were kind of the biggest earner for them for a couple of years there, all and right. uh, their bottom line wasn't looking so hot otherwise, and so, mm. yeah, they just wanted to squeeze the lemon. Yeah, squeeze the peach. Till it was dry, yeah. Yeah, okay. We were under their spell, because it's so disorienting, the whole experience, you know? Okay. You go from uh, hanging with your friends and having barbecues in the afternoon, playing frisbee and playing the odd gig here and there, to uh, being in charge of a multinational uh, of you know concern mm -hmm. and uh, it's super disorienting so we just were you know disoriented yeah i can imagine how were you feeling when the album comes out mach 5 is getting some play not as much as the others are you noticing very how quickly i guess are you becoming aware that uh oh that that plan didn't work like we thought it would well, immediately, because we were still tired. Yeah, okay. And touring just became like this total drudgery, you know. Uh, now, the crowds were great, and uh, as far as our relationship with the audience, it only got stronger with the second record. Oh, good. I mean, the shows were fantastic, because we had more songs to play and more stuff to play with and mm -hmm. uh, more dynamics. And, you know, and again, we were becoming this, like, actual rock band. The shows were getting bigger and bigger, and we were playing festivals. So that part felt like it was growing, for sure. Okay. My attitude about the whole second record thing being not as big as the first is, of course. I mean, that's just the way it always goes. So mm -hmm. I wasn't disappointed. I mean, I was completely prepared to never have this experience at all. So having any kind of experience was interesting to me. So Yeah, good point. You know, I just sort of felt like, again, we were following this cliche, this well-worn path. And I was like, oh, yeah, here's the second record that's not yeah. doing as well. Awesome. <laughs> that is so self-aware. As your career is unfolding in front of your eyes, you're like, yep, I know that cliche. I know that one. I know that stumbling block. I've seen it all. Yeah, yeah, we do all of them. I mean, we have, we're not... We're not there on the timeline yet, but there's many cliches to come. Oh, fun. Okay. Well, because my favorite album of yours is Freaked Out and Small. I think it's probably the most consistent. Um, I, I don't know. I just like it the best. And it's one of those situations. I had, um, maybe you know these guys. I had Brian Vanderark from the Verve Pipe on here. And they had a similar situation where their breakthrough album was huge. And then the follow-up was a disappointment, but the one right after that was great. And if they had been able to, and I don't know if this is the case for you or not, but if they had been able to, you know, excise the one disappointment out of that and kept the flow going, things might have turned out differently. And I sort of feel that way a little bit about Freaked Out and Small. Of course, I'm some nobody. I don't work for Columbia, so who cares what I think? But it just feels like there's more meat on that bone. There's more singles, potential singles to come off of that album. Well, that's interesting. Because the whole point of that record was, you know, we got contacted by a company called Music Blitz, and they were making compilation albums of um, one-of-a-kind songs from bands you know. So, like, they would commission a band to write and record a song that you couldn't get anywhere else, and that would be these compilations they put out. So they did that, and we were broken up. You know, we broke up in 90, early, uh, late 97, hmm. and so we were broken up completely but we were starting a band with sir mix a lot yeah of all people i read about that music blitz uh commissioned us and subset which was the mix a lot band to do uh one-off kind of you know one-of-a-kind songs for them and we did and then we felt really good about it and i was like you know what well, well first of all we were playing three uh you know two string and three string in the band but uh we started playing six string and four string guitars because we didn't have to tour so we were like one and we're enjoying being in the studio again with no pressure so i unearthed a whole you know like a dozen songs that i 
couldn't we couldn't do in the presidents because they just didn't work on the two and three the, the melodies and the guitar parts couldn't be transposed so that was sort of clearing house of songs that were as much as 20 years old no way yeah that had been hanging around um and had been played in various bands that i'd been in before but it was an opportunity for us to just have no pressure we did that whole record in 10 days oh, wow. we'd show up every and I would play a bunch of demos of old songs until somebody went, that one, that's cool. And then the band and the producer, Martin, would arrange it and uh, we'd record it and do one, like one or two songs a day that way. And we finished the record in 10 days. So that record has a lot of energy because it's, you know, we're uh, not under pressure and we're well rested. So no one has expectations with that record. It's not like, because... Oh. We were broken up. We was like we were sleeping with our ex-wife. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But unfortunately, the company Music Blitz kind of screwed us because we made a deal with them. Like, all right, we're going to make this record, but it's not a comeback. It's just a weird one-off kind of thing. And we did a video. Uh, but then, then what happened is Music Blitz went out and uh, betrayed us and told everybody it was our big comeback and uh, sent that out as our quote-unquote world tour. And actually, we were a four-piece for that performance. Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses was our bass player for that. So he's the fourth Beatle, our fourth <laughs> Beatle, fourth, fourth president. Oh, that's great. That stuff's good. It's on YouTube. You should check that out. I will, it's, okay. It, it's well executed. I'm very proud of that stuff. It sounds great. looks great. It's all good, so... curious how you I'm, I'm guessing by proximity because isn't duff from seattle is that how you two became friends or what yeah well actually dave Dieterer, our guitar player knew duff first and brought him in and then um i think dave knew duff wow how did dave know duff duff ended up buying and i don't know if this is how dave knows duff but duff bought the house of the mother of somebody I went to high school with, oh. a house that I went to, used to go to parties at and stuff. Um, and I think I went to a party there. Maybe I didn't. I don't remember. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not sure how Dave knew Duff, but Dave brought Duff in, and you know he was amazing. He just picked everything real fast and played great and <laughs> played along, and he was a pleasure to work with. He was newly sober Ooh. when in our band uh and that was interesting he talked about that a lot and he was going back to school and you know he's since gone on to be a author and is back in guns and roses and all that stuff i just saw him actually last couple weekends ago in montana really? that's another story what? yeah yeah <laughs> are you gonna tell this story why you two were in montana Mike McCready from Pearl Jam has a festival. He started it this year. It's called the Peak to Sky Festival. And he curated it and invited me to go do a Casper Baby Pants show mm. at the festival. And Mike put together a big, you know, all-star rock group to headline the thing, which was like Mike and Duff and a couple guys from the Chili Peppers and Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters. And I think that's it. Wow. So, Wow. Yeah. So um, anyway, I went and hung out with those guys and rocked my face off. So that is amazing. Fun. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Okay. Now let me ask you one question that we were talking about. That I don't want to dwell too much longer on the second album, but I do had a question. Have one other question about it. Why was the same philosophy not put in place for that one? If the first one had been a success, and we got to squeeze it by throwing another one out there, and it's not a success. Why isn't the thinking, okay, guys, get back in there again. Let's throw out a third album in three years 
and uh, <laughs> push that one. Is it because you guys had broken up? Were you over it by them? Were they over you? What's the thinking there? I was over it from the from the beginning. Really? I really. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I. I just never wanted to be in a rock band. You know, frankly, I just, I don't sit around and listen to rock music or like loud band stuff. I'm uh, way more, I like weird, little, small, quirky, odd, toy-like, tiny songs. <laughs> I don't really like, I mean, I I like a good, you know, loud, guitar-heavy sure. rock song every once in a while, but I don't want to be in the center of that machinery and doing it every night and it's just not like in the beginning, the presidents were this quirky little toy band almost, uh -huh, you know. Uh -huh. And then we when we became because of the success, we had to stand up on a stage in front of, you know, tens of thousands of people. Sometimes you can't be a little toy band in front of 10, you know, 30,000 people. You got to, you know, fire up the machine and entertain them all. So it just became something aesthetically just a little too mm rock bandy for me and so i just wanted out right away no like way. i'm yeah so uh which is why not to fast forward too much which is why now i do this casper baby pants thing that is really who i am i am really is, oh yeah that is the entire time well i'll just give you the global thing yeah. the entire time the presidents were happening i had this very clear messaging going on inside myself this this like repeated mantra that said this is really great congratulations but this is not it you have to keep digging this is a stepping stone as far as the presidents go so i did i kept digging for 15 20 years on the side trying to figure out what this other music was supposed to be or you know where i was supposed to really be focusing my attention and eventually after a lot of experimenting side bands side projects records I landed on this like simple, innocent, quirky little uh, style that is perfect as kids' music and family music, and that is really there's no artifice with that. There's no put on any sort of uh, show or whatever. That's just me, and that was my goal. I think that was the the drive I had was to find the music that is completely transparently me, mm. and that's it. And it's working by myself. I'm not supposed to be in a band. I'm supposed wow. to be like more painter or a sculptor in the studio using all the colors, not just guitar-based drums. And uh, now that I've found it, I'm, you know, 16 records in with no end in sight because it's my voice. Yeah. As opposed to like, you know, like forcing president record after president's record and, and like that was a stressful experience for me as a songwriter because the dynamic of what made those made that band work was not apparent to me at the time. And so it was confusing. And like, I don't know how it's like the analogy I always say is like, it's like a monkey painted a painting with its eyes closed. And then you're like, monkey, we sold the painting for a hundred thousand dollars, make 50 more. And the monkey's like, I don't know what I did. Uh, right. right. <laughs> so it was super stressful. And now uh -huh. I have full command of what I'm doing and it is super relaxing. So let's. I I cannot believe everything you're saying. I I mean in a good in the in a good in the best possible way. I am so happy to hear that you have found your place. That is miraculous. Not everybody can say that, and especially I mean I've done 250 of these, and most of the time, not most of the time, but a lot of the time, the people are still kind of trying to get back to that place on the top of the mountain. You know what I mean? But you could not, it sounds like you could not care less. You found the top of the mountain. It's just, it's not a mountain. It's a little hill and it's in a kid's park and that, and you like that better. And the top of the mountain is actually littered with dead bodies, just like Everest. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> and it sounds cliche. You always like run into these, like, where are they now things and they're not uh, successful in the, classical sense and they always say they're happier and you always secretly as a as a viewer you go no you're not <laughs> that's right but it's i mean i you know what i don't really care yeah. i don't care what people think of me all i'm striving for is creative purity and to put out the best music i can make and uh, to have it have a purpose beyond promoting me yeah and that's the thing that i've 
sort of had with the presidents, but it was elusive, that sensation. And with the Casper thing, it is absolutely like paramount to my mission statement is uh-huh. making music that's a tool that families use to to uh, have a shared experience over an aesthetic that a three-year-old and a parent can both genuinely say they love. You know, like we both love the same song. I love it. And so... Uh, in that way, like that, that was one of my major, uh, you know, sort of sensations of lacking when I was in the rock band is I, I couldn't pinpoint the purpose of the mm. whole thing. Like, mm. yeah, sure. We have a song and it's on the radio and it's on MTV and stuff, but what's the point of that? I don't know. Well, how am I helping? And of course, I don't mean that our music wasn't helping. It was, it was making people happy and that's good, but I wanted to help on a deeper level. Yeah. I wanted to like... I wanted to change the world. <laughs> yeah, I understand. So we talk about the business side of things on here sensitively. Um, I mean, I'm guessing you're able to make a living, pay your bills as as Casper Baby Pants. Hell yeah. I mean, because I don't have to split the money three ways and I don't sure. have to give most of it to a publisher or a record label. I am the record label. My margins are ginormous. Good. Especially now in the days of downloading. I mean, whew, yeah. My records cost about $10 to make because oh. in, all I all I have to spend the money on is reference CDs to throw in the car to make sure the mixes work. And uh, a CD, an album, a physical album costs like 65 cents and I sell them for any, you know, it shows for 10 bucks. So Incredible. It used to be in the president's days, uh, I believe the band got 14 cents every time a record sold. No way. Then that got split up, taxed, yeah. you know, uh, deduct, we had to deduct operating expenses, blah, 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 blah. So, of course, there was a, you know, if I sold 5 million records like the presidents have sold, I, if Casper sold 5 million records, I'd be... I'd be Bill Gates rich. Right, so. right. But you've created a very comfortable and fulfilling life for yourself. Not Almost nobody does that. I mean, you know that. Musician or not, especially an artist. Every artist we know is, you know, itchy. They're, they can't get it. The tension, you know, they're unhappy or whatever. They're, they can't reach reach the thing they're striving for. But you've got it, you know? Yeah, I, 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 I did do it. And... It was a lot of work, but you know, it's not easy. It's not like, I mean, finding the Casper thing and then actually making the records has been just like thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of intense work. But, um, so, you know, I feel good that it worked. (laughs) I could have done 50,000 hours of work and had it fail. But, um, I think I put, I put, you know, I put the purpose first. That yeah. was, again, what I was missing with the presidents is a real clear sense of purpose. And I have that now. And once you understand what your music is for mm-hmm. and who it's for and how it's going to work, then you can make choices like that make it really blossom in that environment. And so I would say if anyone's listening who is striving and frustrated, I like to pull back and think about, you know, who, where's... What atmosphere is the listener in that you want to communicate with? Are they curled up in their bed on a rainy Sunday in the dark? Are they, you know, with a bunch of people in a field dancing? Are they with a bunch of people in a, you know, club dancing? Are they by themselves in a club? <laughs> Whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. Find out where they are and write to that environment and uh, really stick to that. And then I feel like that's a potentially more direct route to your final destination. Okay. Um, How often do you play shows? We'd have to do some math here. Let's see. In the course of the entire Casper thing, I have played 1,180 shows. I'm going to bust out a calculator. Okay. So I've played 1,180 shows. And how long has it been? What is it? 2019. I put out my first record in 2009. That's 10 years. Oh, that's easy. Oh, my God. So I have played an average of 118 shows a year. And forgive me, I don't know enough about the children's market. Are these in libraries? Are they at parties? Are they Where are these shows? Schools? Assemblies? 
They have been in libraries and parties in the early days. Actually, this is the first year that I'm not doing libraries because I've, I've definitely outgrown them, but I kept doing them because they're so charming and cute. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm getting to the point now where too many people show up and some kids are sad and that makes me sad. So um, I'm doing at this point, I'm doing lots of uh, theaters. I'm doing uh, summer festival type shows <clears throat> you know communities have a series and i'll do a show in the series and i do wow. a town hall here in seattle um i've played benaroya hall the symphony orchestra hall i've done stuff with the symphony as casper so it's all it's everything from a library meeting room to a symphony hall that's crazy um i think they're from seattle do you know a group called the not it's oh yeah yeah we have a, a loose consortium here of kids bands that we we used to be a lot more connected and and collaborative but we've kind of fallen um hmm. that's kind of fallen to the wayside but we were called Kindependent oh. and it was the not the not it's Johnny Brigar, Recess Monkey, um Harmonica Pocket, Casper Baby Pants and there was one more and I'm forgetting who it is uh anyway uh, and now this guy Brian Vogan is in there too so and okay. we do a, a kid we do two, still do two independent series at a couple of different venues in the town. So throughout the course between like uh, December and May, we do two series at different uh, venues, uh, all the bands. So we have a tight scene. We all know each other. We all support each other. And yeah, it's, it's a very loving That's incredible. Uh, scene. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, a few years ago, early on, this podcast has been going on for a little over four years, and early on I had Sarah Shannon on, who oh, yeah. was in the Nodits, and in the 90s was in Velocity Girl, which was a band that I was really into back in the time, back in the day. So she was telling me all about this. I didn't know about the Nodits until we talked, and she was telling me all about this kid's you know, culture, and they go on tours, and I don't think, maybe because there's four or five or six of them, they may not be as financially stable as you are um but they do something similar i believe you know probably similar shows uh it's kind of similar they're loud they're they're a okay. rock band okay i mean they're they're like they call themselves your kids first rock band mm. uh you need earplugs at their show okay you do not need earplugs at all at my show because okay. it's just me and guitar and i i utilize the audience i mean they do too a lot of our, all of our acts are kind of you know participatory but mm-hmm. i really lean on the audience quite a bit to sing and move and kind of join me because it's just me and a guitar live so but yeah okay. they're they're like they're too loud for me <laughs> okay huh interesting they know they're too loud too but they're just like whatever here we are we're a rock band for your children now one other thing i want to ask you about from a business perspective is um you guys had the theme song to the drew carey show cleveland rocks and I know yeah. you didn't write that song, but you performed it. And so a few years ago, I had uh, Billy Vera. Remember Billy Vera and the Beaters? He had that fluke hit from Family Ties. Um, at this moment, I think it was called. Anyway, he went on to do the theme song to The King of Queens. And okay. he was getting so much mailbox money from that. I don't know what I don't know if that's standard for everybody, but he because of writing the th- or singing the theme song, he gets you know royalties just like the actors do. Drew Carey show is still in on you know cable and reruns. Is are you set up similarly? And if that's too personal, I'm sorry, but I just I have some frame of reference there. I was curious. Yeah, we are, but the checks aren't that big anymore. I ah. mean, it's just it's just you know trickles. Okay. It's like. Uh, I don't know, somewhere between 50 bucks and a couple hundred bucks every couple of months or something. So it's just, Mm. yeah, it's a little trickle. Okay. But because of that gig, because of getting that theme song, I got my eyes got open to doing uh, television theme songs and licensing music for TV and commercials and movies. And I did that really intensely for about 15 years. And that was great. And I created a library, about an 800-piece library that I gave to uh, a licensing company. And back when MTV was freshly making reality shows and reality shows needed a thousand music cues, and I was kind of right on the cutting edge of that uh, wave and made a whole bunch of bank doing that. Really? And then I kind of, 
I kind of burned out on it. I definitely burned out on the custom work. I stopped doing custom work about five years ago. Hmm. Um, people are free to license my Casper songs, and I'll edit them if need be. But I'm not doing, you know, uh, you know, I'm not doing custom work from the ground up anymore. It's just I, I, when I listen back to that music. It's like it's very mediocre. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> I got to work from a place of inspiration. Yeah, I can tell. Okay. Um, similarly, you guys covered video kill the radio star and the wedding singer is that a similar kind of trickle um that's a song that's a movie that gets played all the time too i i don't know what the royalties are like for that that was a cover so we'd get performance royalties i don't really know i think that goes into a different pot that's not a check that shows up at my house that's probably a check that shows up at our accountant's office or something so okay so going back i mean it sounds like your heart left wanting or feeling like you needed to be in the presidents very quickly but at the time did you ever get to rub shoulders with any heroes did you play any shows that really stood out did you you know what are some of the memories from back then that you take with you wow there's a few i mean uh when we were on our way to getting signed we had a very memorable uh sit down with madonna because she wanted to sign us what and really on maverick Actually, it came down to Maverick or Columbia. We were we had to sit in a hotel room at the Farmer's Daughter across from the Farmer's Market there on Fairfax in L.A. and decide Madonna or Columbia. And we picked Columbia. Um, but the meeting with Madonna was uh, very enlightening. She was super smart, of course. She really got us. She understood us. She, uh, you know, took me aside after the meeting and said, uh, whether you sign with me or not, I'm going to tell you that you are good at what you do, but what you do is fun and funny. And so you will never get uh, critical, you know, um, appreciation. You'll never get critical acclaim for what you're doing. You'll never be respected, basically. Yeah. No, uh, so don't wrong. expect it. Yeah. She's like, just do it, but don't expect that. And that really saved me a lot of grief. And I appreciated that, um, that little insight. It's funny. It was funny meeting with her because when I got to college in 1983, it seemed like you could not escape Madonna. It was yeah. on every radio in every dorm room. I mean, I remember hearing it just like wafting through the air for months and thinking, I think I'm going to listen to this Madonna music for the rest. It'll, it'll just be around for the rest of my life. It's never going to go away. Right. And then eventually I ended up having a business meeting with her. So opening up for Tom Petty the last two Ooh. nights of a 29th stand at the Fillmore was fantastic. He was super nice. He invited us specifically. He handpicked us and having uh, grown up, you know, listening to him and uh, very first time I ever saw a, a music video, it was on the nightly news and it was like, this new thing MTV is coming and it looks like this. And it was refugee by Tom really? Petty. <laughs> He was kind of deeply set in my idea of, uh, you know, cutting edge of, of music and videos and storytelling and songs. And he went up on stage with us and introduced us to the crowd like, hey, I invited these people and, you know, be nice to them. Here you go. The presidents of the United States of America. Wait. No and then this, so we used to do this routine where we would put our little fingers together right before we went on and we would say eight bazillion and there was a joke on Pearl Jam's 10, because they've got all their hands together. And <laughs> we put our little fingers together the first night, and he saw us, Tom Petty, and he was like, what are you guys doing? And I'm like, well, we do this thing, we eight bazillion. And he's like, oh, I want to do it too. And so Tom Petty put his little finger in. We did four, four, four pinkies that night. And we went on stage, we played a show. Next night was the last night of his 20-night stand, and it was a little chaotic. And he ended up on the stairs going up to the stage ahead of us. And we very uncharacteristically forgot to do our our ritual. And right as the lights went down, he turned around with his little finger out and Tom Petty said, hey, guys, we forgot to do our thing. <laughs> yeah, so that was, a, that was such a tender little moment. I was like, love you, Tom Petty. Yeah. Wow. There's a, I mean, I don't know. There's probably a half a dozen more, but those are a couple of standouts. I had something I wanted to ask you about, and I have a feeling, I think I already know the answer, and that is, I want to know why there is not an obvious lump parody for Trump. Lump sat alone in a boggy marsh, totally motionless except for her heart, mud flowed up into lumps, pajamas, she totally can 
you have to have been approached by this. There's hundreds of them. You just got to search. Up okay, but YouTube. did you write them? Did you have you? Oh no, no, I'm not. Totally not interested in that. I mean, that song's already been parodied by my good buddy Weird Al. Right. Uh, so, and we're not. You know, if the presidents were, even if we were a band, I don't think we would go there. You know, okay. it's uh, it's just too. Uh, I, I'm totally fine with other people doing it. And if you go on YouTube, you can find a dozen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're all over the place. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, throughout the course of our career with that name, we've been alternately proud of the association and horrified by the association. I hear you. So uh, this would be a horrified yeah. era. Yeah. We were still a band, and so we would have nothing to do with that, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm very much apolitical. I'm uh, not interested. Right. At all. I mean, I don't know, man. There's nothing we can do about it. No, I know. I, <laughs> I mean, was really, apolitical you know until can, this. You know what we can do about it is we can vote with our dollars, spend your money in ways that you that help the world be a better place. Because politicians are not leaders. They are followers. They follow the dollars. They're dollar followers. I mean, Costco doesn't have organic milk because they care. They have organic milk because a lot of people bought organic milk and the market share rose and there it is. So if you if you make decisions with your own with your dollar, that's it basically all, all you all you can control and it will make a difference. I had always largely been apolitical as well until this time and now uh it's hard to it's hard to be apolitical these days i just wonder i i mean i i assumed somebody would have come to you and said you got to write the ultimate lump parody and i even thought i'll share them with you chris i even thought about this last night i couldn't sleep because i started having these ideas of what my parody would be and so i'm going to share with you the first line if you want to get going i thought we could say something like uh, and your song already lends itself perfectly. We could say, Trump sits alone on a golden throne. It's actually a toilet tweeting on his phone. That, and I just thought, that's perfect. Let's start there and, and go. And you're welcome to take what I just said. You don't have to credit me. If you feel like saying, you know, John Lamoureux inspired me to do this, feel free. But I just thought, what a perfect launch. Go from there. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. Well, you never know. You I, never know. If there's anything I I've learned, it's never say never. But uh, yeah. I'm just holding my breath until he leaves. Um, yeah. You know, I, I will say this about Trump. His uh, embarrassing lack of skill and uh, oratorial capabilities and behavior uh, has sparked conversations that are very productive about, uh, you know, sexist behavior and uh, bigotry and racism. I feel like he's accelerated good conversations just by being such an asshole. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so good, <laughs> so true, man. Oh my gosh! It's a yin yang thing. His uh, darkness is creating a uh, inverse light. That's a good point. That's a good way to see that. I will. Uh, I will try to put a po that similar positive spin on things. Um, okay. Speaking of positive th th spin, let's. In, so we're you know in wrapping up here, I want I'm always curious about two things. I always want to know what someone's if they have any lingering regrets. Is there something they did, a decision they made that they wish they hadn't made, and things might have bounced differently if they had. And then secondly, I just want to know what your tastiest memory is. What's the thing? Is it Madonna and Tom Petty? Is it being Casper Baby Pants? What is the thing where you're just like, I cannot believe that happened to me? Okay, well, first of all, I don't really believe in regrets because I feel like even uh, what you may think of as bad decisions uh, or mistakes or painful experiences are actually the most instructive uh, because they show you your boundaries and what you don't want to do. So... Um, yeah, I don't believe in regrets. So no, I have no regrets about anything, even the bad ideas. <laughs> Good. Okay. And yeah, I think I think the sweetest connection, like I think of uh, the entire purpose of what I'm trying to do is use the song to make the room elevate. 
So I think of songs as not the de- not the thing, not the mm. art form or whatever. The art form is how the song interacts with a crowd in a room and what the crowd does and how it affects me. Like the energy in a room is what I'm playing with. And the song is like, it's like the song is a hammer driving a nail, but the art is the driving of the nail, um, the action of it or something. I don't know if I'm putting that right, but... Um, so to that end, my sweetest memory or, or my sweetest sensation uh, or whatever as a musician is when a little child runs up to me and gives me a hug. Oh, man. That is <laughs> Because the they don't have to do that. That's yeah. not part – I'm not asking for a hug. They'll just run up and hug my leg or like reach up like they want me to hug them. And it's so honest and true and uh, – pure and positive and clean just like you know i trust i trust when a little kid tells me they love my music i really believe them you know mm-hmm. that's <laughs> and, beautiful. Uh, that, that's the best yeah that's the best so i i love where i am right now with it i mean this is this is the end of a long search and uh Every step of the way was worth it. So Good. I'm glad. Um, yeah. What about you personally? I mean, do you have your own children? I assume. Yep, I've got a 21 year old son who lives in Bellingham, and I've got a soon to be 19 year old daughter who's uh, kind of migratory at the moment. She's a, a sailing instructor at a summer camp all summer, and then she's going off to college in the fall. Good for you. And they are awesome people. Josie and Augie, they're really, really great people. Uh, my first wife and I are divorced, and I'm remarried to Kate, who's the artist that does all my Casper covers. Nice. And, uh, the, and also a songwriting partner. And, uh, and But my first wife, Mary Lynn, is the one that wrote the song that you could arguably say is the Casper Baby Pants hit, which is Run, Baby, Run. Run, baby, run. Run, 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 run. Dance, baby, dance. Dance, 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 dance. 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 And then you swing, baby, swing. Swing, 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 swing. Swing, baby, swing. Swing, 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 swing. Swing, baby, swing. at the Casper thing without my wives. That's I needed great. both wives. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You talk about, again, going back to this idea that the presidents weren't kind of feeding your soul. There are six albums out there. So when you guys get together for something like Kudos to You or These Are the Good Times People or whatever, what's the motivation there? Is it just getting together with buddies? Is it outside? Like we were still a fun, we we broke up in 97 but we got back together in 2002 so 2000 early 2003 so uh we were a band again so we had a second act we had a first act four years long then we had a five-year breakup and then we had a second act that was 13 years long oh i didn't realize so, okay yeah second act was way longer dave the original guitar player left in 2004 after we made 
Love Everybody, which was the first record we made after reuniting. Mm-hmm. Um, and Andrew joined. So Andrew's actually been in the band longer and played more shows than Dave. Wow. Um, but he's still the new guy. He okay. was always the new guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So did did uh, Love Everybody, uh, These Are the Good Times People, and Kudos to You all during our second act. And those were, you know, I, I had new songs and I was, you know, reuniting was fantastic because the initial experience was so disorienting and so overwhelming. I couldn't fully enjoy it or appreciate what we achieved. Five years break and then getting back together and playing those songs again, it was like I was in the greatest President's cover band ever. Excellent. And it felt so good. It felt like I was disconnected from the, the you know, uh, disorienting sensation of the first round. And I got to really enjoy it and really appreciate what we achieved and feel the love from the crowd and kind of like revisit the whole thing having taken a deep breath and uh that's why we went for 13 years because that was so fun but about six years into that second act i was like okay that's good i'm Mm -hmm. done but we had momentum and it was fun and we weren't playing that often and the gigs were really great and paid well and uh you know get to go to europe and tour around and make memories and it was and kate went on tour with us and she was our merch person for like four years and so there were there were reasons to keep on doing it and then i finally uh flipped the switch and said that's it in 2015 so i knew you guys had gotten back together but you've done so many things as we've kind of illustrated here i didn't know if they became your primary concern or if that was one thing you know a lot one line item on a list of the background music the children's music the whatever it might be that you're kind of doing at the same time yeah, I was doing all three at the same time there for a while. I was okay. doing scoring. I was doing Casper because I started Casper in 2009, but the presidents didn't break up for another six years after that. So for six years, I was doing all three. Yeah. So it was kind of tense. Okay. I can see that. <laughs> when I wasn't touring with the presidents, I was playing Casper shows. Yeah. I'm slowing down now, though. I'm I'm 54 and I'm feeling my age. So. Well. And you're doing what you love. And that's, I got to say, just in wrapping up, I, I mean, I've, I've had a fascination with you guys all along, but it is really, truly inspiring to hear where you've netted out on all of this. And um, it makes me rethink my own life, as it should anyone who's, you know, striving for purpose, looking for purpose, looking to magnify that purpose if they know what it is. And so I really am so thankful that you shared this with us. I really, truly am. It's an inspiring story. I appreciate you asking me, and I—it's, uh, you know, it's fun to talk about, and I hope it helps others kind of accelerate their process a little bit. Um, I've always been a late bloomer, and it took me a long time to find my voice. You know, a part of it is hard work and patience. You know, and experimenting and not being afraid to fail. There you have it, Chris Ballou. Hope you guys enjoyed that. He's such a good guy, so funny. And I think doing the children's music is perfect for a guy like that, with that personality. Anyway, check out Casper Baby Pants. We had to close it out with Mach 5. This was the song on that second album that should have been a hit and wasn't, and it kind of ended the momentum, and that was sort of it. But anyway, they were a fun band. Next week, we're talking to one of the biggest one-hit wonders ever, specifically of the 70s. So we're going disco. Interesting conversation. Come back next week for that one. A huge thanks to Paul Underwood. This is a pup, a Paul Underwood production. We're so lucky when he chips in and helps us out every month. Thank you, Paul, for all you do. Uh, You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. Or you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Later this week, we are putting out a deep dive album. This is sort of an under the radar album, but I love this conversation and I am so excited to share it with all of you. Thanks folks, we'll talk to you soon.
myself as passion. So I 